We at the Cato Institute try to live our principles, and that means taking no government money. So it's through support from people like you that we're able to work toward our shared vision of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Please consider supporting the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by visiting cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more about the benefits of sponsorship. Give a thousand dollars and I'll gladly give you a shout out on the podcast. Thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 30th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The freedom to trade is perhaps the most basic freedom we have. Engaging in voluntary exchange with people who have things that we want possesses the power to dramatically increase our standard of living in very short order. At the most recent Cato Club event, Scott Lincecum and Alex Narasta went back to basics in detailing the benefits of trade, especially during a tense time for our economic lives. Uh, So trade, at its most basic, is voluntary, mutual exchange across borders. So uh, why why say at its most basic? Well, because when we hear about trade policy um, in the news, in the political sphere, uh, it's always two countries trading with each other or a trade agreement like NAFTA or whatever. But the reality is that trade really is just individuals trading voluntarily for mutual benefit. And that's, there's an old quote by William Graham Sumner who says that, you know, protectionism, on the other hand, really is when you think about it, it's, it's an attack on one's neighbor because your neighbor is, is the one engaging in that trade that you're trying to get those benefits, uh, that business uh, for yourself. So why now should libertarians care? Well, uh, first, uh, trade affects basically everything in our lives, a lot of, at least in our daily goings about. Um, You know, invisibly, uh, trade, if you look at your iPhones or the miracles of the vaccines, you name it, um, almost everything uh, has some connection to trade, multinational investment, services, and the rest. Um, We heard about the Jones Act last night. It's a big thing we talk about. So, and we're hearing about the shipping crisis now. Well, it turns out that trade policy is actually having a bit of a role in the shipping crisis. All those ships backed up in the ports, well, it turns out that uh, some of that is due to bad trade policy, that uh, the Jones Act prevents by making it essentially cost prohibitive to have coastwise shipping, and that puts stress on trucks and on trains that are now straining from, from the pandemic. So, Beyond that, um, trade, I think, is also important for libertarians because it really reflects a lot of our principles. Um, Belief in free markets, in spontaneous order, the seen versus the unseen, um, non-intervention in peace. I think there's a big foreign policy element to that. Trading bolsters national security. Countries that trade together typically don't go to war against each other. And so these are things that I think libertarians prioritize, and they're all... I think, embodied in in trade and trade policy. So um, beyond that, I think the other reason is on the flip side, because protectionism um, restricts economic freedom um, and is a gateway drug of sorts. This is an old Milton Friedman quote. He didn't say gateway drug, but there's the general idea about trade policy um, and protectionism being seductive for people who are otherwise supportive of free markets. And essentially, it's the camel's nose under the tent. right. People say, you know, I like free markets, but China or but NAFTA. Um, And then last, I think the the bonus is uh, that trade gets blamed for a lot of stuff that isn't trade's fault. 
And a lot of that is, I think, bad domestic policy. You know, when uh, back in the old days when President Obama's uh, got took some flack for Solyndra, the big failure, that solar panel company, U.S. industrial policy, he blamed China. It's because of trade, not because of misguided economic policies. So all sorts of reasons I think that we should, we should care. So I think that all makes, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. I got my background in economics. Support for free trade is one of the things that economists basically all agree on. <laughs> but the public, it's not so much. Not so much in that direction. Right. There's more disagreement there. And so what are some of the ways, what's the biggest thing that people really get wrong about trade and globalization? Yeah, it's tough. There's a, a lot of things people get wrong, um, unfortunately, particularly on Capitol Hill. Um, but I think that other than the one that I just mentioned, that the myth that trade is between countries and not individuals, I think the other really big one is the myth that imports, whether it's goods or services, automatically destroy jobs. And you hear this constantly, you know, the China shock very big. You hear it in the press, in the business press, in academia, the idea that Chinese imports destroyed millions of American jobs. Well, yes, uh, international competition, like any sort of free market competition, it could be two gas stations right across the street from each other, doesn't matter. Yes, that's going to have competitive pressures and put some, some people will lose jobs, some businesses will go out of, out of business. But uh, imports also support a lot of jobs in a lot of ways. Most obviously, uh, about half of everything we import are manufacturing inputs. So these are things that American manufacturers use to make other things and to be globally competitive to do so. So one example, um, back when I was a trade lawyer before I escaped to the, the, the delights of policy, um, I represented a company in South Carolina that uh, made printing plates. Now this company needed imported aluminum from Europe. Well, President Trump's aluminum tariffs raised their import prices by 10%, instantly putting them at a disadvantage versus their competitors that made printing plates abroad, because there weren't tariffs on the printing plates, only on the aluminum. Well, that's about a 500 jobs in a small town in South Carolina, 500 manufacturing jobs, blue-collar jobs, that were dependent on that. And this was a multinational manufacturer and actually considered maybe shutting down that plant and shifting to a plant in Europe that had access to globally priced aluminum and essentially putting those people out of work. Um, I think another great example, I actually just saw it in the headlines this morning, um, Amazon. So Amazon... Uh, has all this new hardware, your Fire TV stick. Now they have those little robots. They're not exactly robot maids. I'm still waiting for robot maids, but it's still pretty cool, this little robot Amazon has. Well, so why does Amazon have these things that are made abroad? Well, it's so they can sell services, whether it's Amazon Music or Amazon Video. And so that supports billions of dollars in economic activity, tons of jobs using imports to, to that. Right, so, I mean, like people understand that exports are valuable, right? We're selling things, that makes a lot of sense. Right. But what people really miss is that the import side of it is just as important. Exactly. Right? I mean, for Cato could triple my salary, right? But if the price of everything I buy goes up, exactly. Those it consumer, sort of nullifies that. Those consumer benefits. Not asking for a raise. And that, I think, gets to the next point, that the money we save on imports, we don't just stuff in our mattresses or set on fire. Well, we may put those to more productive use. We go spend them on services or we save for our child's education, whatever it is, that money is put to better use. Now, that makes the economy more productive, more dynamic, and that's good for not just consumers, but for the economy overall and for the businesses that that money supports. And you mentioned something in there about vaccines. Yeah. And you've said elsewhere, you've said, I think, here that 
vaccines are, quote, like a miracle of globalization, right, right. unquote. Yeah. We don't hear about that very often. Unpack that for us. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge vaccine globalized, globalization fanboy when it comes to this. So, <laughs> and I wrote a, a long column talking about the miracle of, of the vaccines and how they were produced. Because if you look from, from start to finish, uh, the vaccines that have uh, so helped uh, the economy and society save so many lives are, are a miracle of globalization. The, the knowledge was uh, a collaboration of international researchers, a lot of immigrants from Germany, uh, uh, Caitlin Carrico. Uh, she had, uh, she was from Hungary, I believe, and she was yeah. the mRNA researcher. Um, if you look at, for example, the board of Moderna, it looks like the United Nations. I mean, it's from all over the world. They had a, a, good, United, a good United Nations. Yes, a good so. United Nations. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Right. Sorry. No blue helmets or anything. Um, but of course, then the Pfizer BioNTech relationship itself was a German company and American company get together. Well, how did they get all this money? You know, Pfizer and BioNTech didn't take government money up front. They just had a procurement contract. Well, global capital markets, right? Um, You had multinational global investment uh, that allowed Pfizer to drop $2 billion on testing without batting an eyelash. Um, You go then to the production. Well, that's a supply chain wonder. Uh, 80 different countries... uh, or were involved in the production of these vaccines, uh, including some neighbors and, and including some in the United States as well. And in fact, uh, Pfizer had tons of pre-existing manufacturing capacity that it uses as a global drug manufacturer and used that manufacturing capacity to produce these vaccines. And then finally, you know, I think the unsung credit here is the logistics network. So we have this sprawling global logistics network that has developed over decades um, spontaneously. There was no government planning or action. What is this, like ships and Ships, containers, and... ports, trains, you name it. Um, uh, software, very much so, to get everything in the right place at the right time. So all of this developed to move those cheap T-shirts that everybody denigrates. Well, guess what? When it came time to move vaccine materials and met vaccines, it was already there. No government planner snapped his fingers and and, and produced this out of thin air. And so, so all of this together, it really is just a fantastic, wonderful a story of, of how involved and how the globalization uh, quietly um, and not subject to any plan spontaneously uh, creates all these miracles. So you've convinced me. Yeah. You know, a trade sounds pretty good. Um, but as you know, a, a ton of people don't agree with you, right? <laughs> you've seen... Yeah, yeah, see, I think your hate mail is pretty bad, too. Um, you've seen a lot of changes in globalization over the last couple decades, right. you know, the last two decades or so working on this topic, you know, both as a practicing trade attorney, as a senior fellow at Cato. I think when you were an RA at Cato yeah. and, and an intern at Cato uh, back in the day. In the 90s, yeah. In the 90s. Now, how different is trade policy today compared to a decade ago? Do we have more protectionism, less? Well, we definitely have more protectionism. I think that's a pretty uh, safe thing to say. But I think it's also important that the trends in the United States towards more protectionism didn't start overnight. They actually didn't start with President Trump. Um, And the United States was never uh, a free trade paradise. We were no angel. Um, If you look at, yes, U.S. tariff rates are low. We hear that a lot. We have one of the lowest average tariff rates in the world. Well, we actually, though, have a lot of tariff peaks, we call it, in important things like uh, children's shoes or pickup trucks, 25% tariffs on those. Now, you leave the tariff world and you get to the non-tariff world, and that's where the United States is a major offender, whether it's subsidies or trade 
trade remedy measures or buy American rules or that wonderful Jones Act. You can go through the list. Um, independent observers and say that the United States is actually, when you add up all the non-tariff barriers, one of the most protectionist countries in the world. And is that a lot worse than a decade ago? Exactly. And yes, it certainly has gotten worse. Um, you know, the, the, uh, it's starting in the Obama era. Um, we really stopped engaging in trade agreements. Right. We stopped engaging at the World Trade Organization as much. But things were still kind of coasting. In fact, uh, I think in 2009, uh, Dan Eikenson and I wrote a paper on how to restore the free trade consensus, looking at this unraveling of the pro-trade uh, consensus that was there when I was uh, a wide-eyed intern back in 1998. And what you see is that from there, though, it really accelerated. And in the Trump era, we saw national security tariffs on steel and aluminum, uh, tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Chinese imports, safeguard tariffs on washing machines and solar panels, um, and an explosion in these trade remedies, anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures. Now into the now have over 500 of those uh, duties, special duties in place. And so it has gotten worse, unfortunately. And, and one of the things I hear from folks who are trying to make it even worse than it is, is support for something called industrial policy, right? We yeah. hear uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, on the left, Josh Howley on the right, pushing for this right. policy on a federal level. Um, what is industrial policy? How is it related to trade? Tell us about your new paper on it. Right, so I, uh, for those of you... Uh, Interested? I just wrote a brand new paper on industrial policy because it is all the rage once again in Washington. I say all the rage once again because it was all the rage in the 1980s and into the 1990s. I thought we had put this to bed uh, after the failures of the 80s and 90s, but unfortunately it's back. So what is industrial policy like you asked? Well, most basically it's government picking winners and losers in the market. Um, now that I think that's a, a nice cliche, but in, when you get into the weeds and the history of industrial policy, what you see is that the government planners, pursuant to some national strategy, um, decide to direct targeted uh, interventions, subsidies, tariffs, by American rules and the rest, to achieve uh, specific market-beating commercial outcomes. So a really simple example is semiconductors. We need more semiconductor production. And this gets to the last point. In the United States, there's a core nationalist part to this. And that's, again, I think where trade protectionism come in. And it's important to define industrial policy, as wonky as that sounds, because industrial policy supporters say that everything, all of the miracles of technology are because of industrial policy. The iPhone is industrial policy. Apple is industrial policy. The internet is vaccines. industrial policy. The vaccines yeah. are the industrial policy. Now, never mind, taking the vaccines, for example, that the most prolific, the first vaccine to market was actually one that, again, involved all that wonderful globalization I mentioned, but also had very little government involvement or direction. And in fact, the only thing the government said in its contract with Pfizer was that we want a vaccine. If you can get it approved, we don't care how it's made. Pfizer's contract actually with the government of the United States specifically said, you can't say how we do our supply chain and you can't get involved in our manufacturing process. That's, that's our deal. Now that is um, not industrial policy in any legitimate sense. Uh, but unfortunately, 
it, neutral policy is seductive because it, it gives easy solutions to complex problems. It hides a bit of the nationalism and protectionism. Uh, it's not just about tariffs or, or uh, that type of restriction. It's more about, no, we just want to subsidize this manufacturer. We just want our transportation projects to use uh, American steel and the rest. But it has, unfortunately, the same results, and that's, that's a, lo- a history of failures uh, and a lot of political cronyism and corruption uh, along the way, not to mention higher consumer costs and distortions. And if you want more of that list, definitely check out the paper. I mean, it sounds to me, and this will be the last question before we get to your questions. So warm up, warm up your questions. Um, it seems to me like we're in a pretty dark spot, uh, to put it bluntly. We have a lot of tariffs, you know, taxes on trade, more than we did before. We have a lot of non-tariff barriers, more than we did before. We have industrial policy, the government getting more involved, or at least thinking about being yeah. more involved and picking winners. And losers, that's pretty um, depressing. But are there any aspects that make you optimistic about the future? What can we look forward to? Yeah, I think there are uh, some reasons for optimism. Now, I'm I'm an, a natural optimist. You're a sunny guy. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So I apologize in advance for my demeanor. Um, but the uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's two big reasons. First is that regardless of the policy, trade keeps going. And private sector, global supply chains, trade uh, bounced back almost immediately from the pandemic. We were told this was the death of globalization. No, not at all. Supply chains, private actors adapted quickly to get stuff back on our supermarket shelves, to produce the vaccines, to do all these other things. Um, And while Congress is still debating its industrial policy plans, supply chains have moved on. And they'll move on again by the time any of these plans are implemented. Um, so that's the first reason, that the private economy, the free economy, is just roaring, roaring along. Yeah. Real resilience. Yeah. Right. And so, but the second reason um, is that if you look at the polling data, you know, polling on trade is kind of suspect because everybody kind of seems to support trade. And then when it's their own jobs at risk, all of a sudden they're protectionists. But when you look at the polling, you see two real things that stand out. First, young people are very much more pro-trade than older people. Now, it's the first positive thing I've heard about the younger generation. Yeah, those, those Zoomers. I think they're Gen Z. The Zoomers, uh, they love their iPhones. They love uh, playing uh, video games where there's actually virtual worlds and they're trading virtual currencies with people in China or wherever. Uh, that is very cool. And I think that kids, I'll call them kids, who yeah. have grown up, in this modern globalized world, post-1990s, really are not going back to autarky. They are not going back to um, a simpler, less complicated, more isolated uh, world. The other reason that I I think similarly is we've had now three plus years of protectionist experimentation. And it's been a pretty abject failure. You know, you look at China, I think it's a great example. We slapped all these tariffs on China. We demanded that they change intellectual property rules. We did all this stuff. It hasn't worked very well. Um, in fact, studies show that it imposed significant economic costs for American manufacturers, which I thought we were trying to help. Um, it uh, ended up with inevitable retaliation from the Chinese against American farmers and American companies. Um, 
and it didn't change Chinese behavior. Um, and in fact, there was just an article in the journal the other day about a, a bunch of companies are complaining that China's intellectual property practices are the same as they were before. So the trade wars are not easy to win. Who'd have thought? They are not. Scott Lincecum and Alex Narasa are scholars at the Cato Institute. It is the final week for our push to make you, podcast listener, a podcast sponsor. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. <laughs>